You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Before I get started, and by the way, I, I, the only disclosure I have of any relevance is uh, that I uh, do some work uh, for the, one of the companies that manufactures patch testing materials called Smart Practice. Uh, I do a lot of other clinical research work, but none of that has to do with contact dermatitis. So here's our, uh, here's our pre-test question, if you will, for your ARS responses. If you'd like to grab your little keypads there, if you would, would and um, we'll go uh, through these again at the this one again at the end. Allergic contact dermatitis in an atopic individual compared to a non-atopic person is more common, less common, or of the same prevalence? Is it more common if you're atopic to have an allergic contact dermatitis also? Is it less common or uh, does it not really matter? While you're doing that, um, and by the way, uh, if you anybody in the back wants to wants to sing along, if anybody in the back wants to, uh, okay, there you go. We'll see what the uh, we'll see as we go down the line here, where we are at the end. Um, if anybody in the back wants to move closer to see the slides, you're not going to ever to offend me if you get up and walk out. Unless, and I would really prefer if you do that not to yell insults as you're leaving, but. Other than that, it's fine to go ahead and come forward if you wish. Um, how many people in here do patch testing? So we have a fair amount. Of those who don't do it yourself, uh, how many do it, somebody else in the practice does it? So that's just a few more. Okay, good, good. Well, uh, and you're not unlike many dermatologists because most dermatologists uh, don't, learn, don't learn patch testing and contact dermatitis in their residency programs, and I think uh, it's something that's very unfortunate. I hope that many of you will go back if you're not doing testing and say, hey, man, we got to get things going around here and do more patch testing. So uh, that will be my goal for this talk, uh, to get you stimulated and interested in thinking about doing that. So let's start out with some contact dermatitis uh, uh, points that are relatively basic, and you know, usually when we say contact dermatitis, we, we think about allergic contact dermatitis, right? But let's remember that there's another whole uh, spectrum of dermatitis that is irritant contact dermatitis that has nothing to do with an allergy. So we're going to talk about both of those, and then I'm going to talk about patch testing techniques and some common allergens. Uh, if you have your uh, uh, slides or handout that I sent in earlier, you'll find that this has a lot more pictures, but that has some more text. I'm not going to go into all the text in there, but I don't usually put the pictures in my uh, handouts for distribution. So you'll see more pictures here today. So to review, irritant contact dermatitis is, is basically a direct toxic effect of some substance on the skin. You do not have to be immunologically sensitized against that particular substance. And of course, therefore, it can occur on first exposure and any subsequent exposure. Uh, if you want to think of it, the most severe irritant contact dermatitis is, is an acid or chemical burn. Uh, obviously, if you dump some uh, strong acid uh, or alkaline substance on your hand, you're going to immediately have a burning effect, and that essentially is the, is the worst form of irritant contact dermatitis. But of course, and that's not too tough to diagnose most of the time. Um, the, the, the more common, much more common form of irritant contact dermatitis, and the thing that we have to um, uh, think about is, is the mild irritation that progresses over time. 
So things like soaps that remove the natural oils of your skin, uh, solvents that do the same thing, organic solvents, even water. If, you, know, you know how you get all prinkly and pruney if you're in the pool for a long time? Well, what that's doing is actually overhydrating your skin, and that uh, actually leads to some skin barrier defects. So uh, just, just ex excessive immersion in water, even without soap, uh, can cause irritant dermatitis. And something that's very often forgotten is frictional irritant dermatitis. So individuals through either habit or through a work environment who are consistently having some sort of frictional exposure against their skin um, may develop uh, uh, this from just a mechanical injury. I'm from Kentucky when we uh, used to have a lot of textile plants in Kentucky, and I would routinely see individuals, they were always ladies because only basically ladies worked at the sewing machines in these plants, and they would have a dermatitis on the back of one hand. And the reason they had that was not an allergy to the cloth or anything they were using. The reason they had it was because their job involved uh, running some, uh, some material through a sewing machine uh, for hours at a time, and that material rubbed over the back of their other hand, and so the other hand where the friction occurred developed some dermatitis. I like this slide because uh, this was from uh, an, an English publication a few years ago, but um, it kind of gives you an idea of what to think about with uh, irritant contact dermatitis. Again, the acute irritant situation is very obvious. You know the history somebody's exposed to uh, a strong uh, acid alkali or something else. But the cumulative irritation is kind of like this, this slide on the right where, you know, you get some irritation exposure and the skin has a little bit of damage and maybe you use some moisturizers or some other things and time goes by, maybe you quit doing the irritant exposure and things get better. But then uh, they don't get all the way better. And so then the irritation occurs again and it's even a little worse. And then eventually you get to that threshold where you have clinically relevant and important irritant dermatitis. The reason I think this slide's important is that when we're, we're uh, helping our patients, when we're treating our patients, we've got to tell them, you know, look, this did not happen overnight, and it's not going to get better overnight. So it oftentimes may take several months for that uh, irritant dermatitis to fully resolve uh, as, as long as the individual can uh, uh, reduce or eliminate the exposure. <clears throat> now, irritant dermatitis doesn't look like anything different from any other dermatitis. And in fact, clinically, you know, you, in making a diagnosis, you have to put yourself in the category of dermatitis or eczema, and then you got to think, what kind of dermatitis is it? So this could be allergic, this picture could be allergic dermatitis, could be irritant dermatitis, could be somebody with atopic dermatitis, and they have it other places, we just have a picture of their hand. It could be all of those things. So the, the clinical appearance usually doesn't help you very much in chronic irritant dermatitis. Acute is a different story, of course, but for chronic irritant dermatitis, in this case due to somebody with frequent hand washing, um, you, you, this, you're going to see this sort of a picture usually. Uh, and do remember that atopic individuals are much more prone to irritant dermatitis uh, than, uh, than the non-atopic person, especially if they're in, in wet work sort of situations where they're uh, even if their typical atopic dermatitis in their antecubital and popliteal areas has totally gone away when they were 12 years old, then they're 18 years old and they're now a hairdressing student or they're going into the uh, medical field or the food service or something and they're washing their hands a lot, it's very likely for them to develop hand dermatitis, much more likely than it is uh, for those who are non-atopic. Okay, let's switch gears a little. This is not 
uh, irritant uh, dermatitis. This is allergic contact dermatitis. This, in fact, is relatively classic allergic dermatitis to the most common allergen in North America, and that is, of course, uh, poison ivy oak and sumac. The allergen is called urushiol. Uh, it's thought that about three-quarters of, of us in America, and probably that includes North America or, or, or Canada, are uh, allergic. Uh, it's really not anybody going to do a study to prove that because I don't think anybody wants to get a, do a bunch of patch testing on people to see if they're allergic to poison ivy. Uh, and you know those plants are just about everywhere uh, in North America. Now, you may not know that, that these plants do not exist naturally in the rest of the world. So it's surprising to me that we haven't used biological warfare and, you know, mailed some of this to China or North Korea or places we don't like and, and let it start growing. But that's, uh, that's probably not a good thing anyway. If you get it and you're picking the poison ivy plant, uh, you can, you can uh, see from this old picture, this blisters between the fingers, and the person was using calamine lotion on that, which is really not necessarily a bad treatment. So let's talk about allergic dermatitis. The first exposure to an allergen uh, requires an uh, antigen uptake, and, and you will sometimes hear the word haptin. The haptin is actually the chemical or the substance that's the, that gets on your skin. It becomes an allergen when it complexes with skin proteins uh, and then is processed by antigen-presenting cells. Um, I'm going to use the term allergen, although the, the actual chemical, the technical term probably is haptin, but we really all call them allergens. So um, anyway, you have antigen-presenting cells in your skin. You've got tons of those. They're everywhere. They're just waiting for an allergen to walk along and come onto the skin. And then that allergen is literally carried physically by those antigen-presenting cells into some regional lymph nodes. At that point, the antigen-presenting cells, they have good buddies called T-cells, and those T-cells in the regional lymph nodes say, hello, APC, what do you got for me today? And the antigen-presenting cells passes the allergen over to the T-cell. And then the T-cell says, ah, you know, let's, let's get rid of this stuff. So the T-cells then proliferate, specifically making uh, 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 the ability to attack that specific allergen. And all that stuff takes a couple weeks. So if you are not allergic to poison ivy, and you could go pull some poison ivy all day long today. You could roll around in it, and of course it would never bother you. In two weeks or so, if you go back and do the same thing again, you may get a rip-roaring dermatitis. Once your T cells have been sensitized to those allergens, then it doesn't take so long. Uh, at that point, you get the same allergen uptake, uh, but then you've got those T cells, and they're floating around the body, and there's more of them in certain spots than others, perhaps. But, uh, but eventually, if you are re-exposed to that allergen, uh, then those memory T cells recognize that allergen, and then they induce the immunologic response, and you get allergic contact dermatitis. And that all takes maybe just six or eight hours, maybe takes a couple of days. And that couple of days is critical to remind our patients that, you know, it's not that you got into something today and it caused a reaction in half an hour. That will not happen. Uh, maybe if you're really allergic, many of you perhaps who are allergic to nickel, if you wear inexpensive pierced earrings with nickel, you know how long it takes for the dermatitis to develop. So that's a typical thing to think about. But it could take as long as a couple of days. And this little uh, graphic cartoon uh, kind of just shows how all that stuff works, where the uh, allergens are uh, starting somewhere over to the left. And my little mouse, it's not working, so that's fine. 
But if the allergens start to the left, they go to the cells, lymph, uh, lymph nodes rather, and, um, uh, and then are processed and uh, produce sensitivity. So the other thing that's very important to remember, uh, kind of for us, but mostly for our patients, because patients will always say, well, I've got this, I'm allergic to this stuff, doc. What happens if I get into it someday and, you know, I, it, is it going to kill me? Is it going to anaphylax me? Am I going to have some massive, huge reaction? And the absolute reaction is no. There is no exception. There is no maybe. The answer is no, it will not do that because it's a totally different mechanism of allergy in your body. Uh, anaphylaxis or immediate hypersensitivity, uh, so when you get hives, when you get uh, say if you're peanut allergic and you eat peanuts or if you're uh, allergic to bee stings and you get stung by the bee and you have to get your EpiPen handy. All that stuff is a totally different immunoglobulin, immunoglobulin E mediated process, nothing to do with the T-cell mediated process of allergic dermatitis. And so while the, I will tell you that there are exceedingly rare overlap cases they, even those don't result in allergy, they might result or, or in, in anaphylaxis, they might result in hives. But the answer to the question that when the patient says, is this going to cause me some severe problem? The answer is absolutely not. It will not cause you uh, death or disability. Okay, so let's talk about some of the most common contact allergens. Uh, some of our, fa beyond poison ivy, which is obvious. Uh, metals are very good contact allergens. They are uh, you know, small molecules or ions that can easily penetrate the skin. Nickel is the most common. Gold is the second most common, and cobalt and chromium, and there's palladium. There's a whole bunch of other ones. We won't get into every single one of them. <clears throat> Next on our list, uh, many times, and I'll show you a list in a minute uh, of recent data, is the topical antibiotics, neomycin, more common than bacitracin, and even polymyxin can do this as well, and other topical antibiotics. Fragrances are very common allergens, and we test those with some fragrance mixes and something called Meroxylon Perere, or Balsam of Peru was the old name. Preservatives in skincare products. Uh, if you want to make a skincare product like a cosmetic and you don't want it to spoil and grow mold and bacteria within a couple of weeks, you've got to have some kind of preservative in there for it to survive. And those preservatives are pretty good allergens. There are some formaldehyde-based preservatives. Uh, we call FRPs, formaldehyde-releasing preservatives. Uh, there's methylchloroisothiazolinone. There's methyldibromobluteronitrile. There's a host of them. Uh, and, of course, you can look all those up, and we'll have some later in this talk. Chemicals that are used in making rubber are common allergens. Who, are, who in here has seen a case of latex allergy in the last year? documented proven latex allergy. Okay, I saw two hands and then they went down when I said documented proven. So latex allergy is very, very rare these days because that's an anaphylactic or an IgE-mediated reaction to the latex protein in gloves and other rubber devices. <clears throat> but allergy to the chemicals used in processing and manufacturing rubber are very common, always have been, we were, it was overshadowed by latex allergy 20 years ago when people were making a lot of cheap gloves uh, and not processing them well. But those other chemicals that go into making rubber are still good common allergens. We'll get back to some of that in a bit. <clears throat> so how do you diagnose allergic contact dermatitis? Well, the most important thing you have to know is what 
Well, you're going to patch test them. We'll get to that in a minute. But when, what, the most important thing in your history that you have to know is what sort of things is the person exposed to? Are they just exposed to the, those sorts of things that would be normal in all of us, skin care products, um, maybe topical medications, maybe uh, uh, things around the home? Then you've got to know about the workplace and, and do they work in an environment where there might be exposure to chemicals or substances that are not the typical thing the rest of us are routinely exposed to. So you kind of have got to have enough history to get an idea of what sort of things those people are exposed to. Um, the disease course is kind of important, uh, if then, but then it's, it's maybe fairly obvious to the patient they may not even come in to see you so that if they're exposed to something and they get dermatitis and then they get away from it and they get better and they do that three or four times, if they haven't already figured out that's the cause of their dermatitis, then you've got more challenges than, than diagnosing them. Seasonal variation may be important because what are different seasons, what happens? Well, there's more sun exposure or less sun exposure. There's temperature differences. There's, you wear different clothing in different seasons, and so all of those may lead to different treatments or different exposures. Response to treatment is critical. Um, if somebody does not respond to decent doses of prednisone or other corticosteroids, uh, you got to think maybe there's something else going on because allergic dermatitis usually does respond pretty well to those medications. <clears throat> now, what's not important, and what every patient will tell you, is that, well, Doc, I, 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 change, I, I, I changed my shampoo and my soap and my laundry products, and uh, I did all that stuff, and it really didn't make any difference. Well, why is that not important? That's not important because the ingredients in all those products are very similar many times, and so unless you go out of your way to read ingredient labels and avoid things on those labels, changing products is, is often useless in allergic dermatitis. Two things that are very important, and I've highlighted itch here. Allergic contact dermatitis almost always itches. So if some, not, you know, it's, nothing's 100% in, in medicine, right? But it's pretty close to that in allergic dermatitis. So someone comes in with some rash or maybe some hand eczema, <clears throat> and they're not at all itchy, the chances that they're allergic is pretty small. Any of you who've had poison ivy dermatitis or some other allergy, you probably know how itchy it gets. And that's going to be true of most allergens. And then the other thing is atopy. So it is critical to know if someone is atopic because uh, it makes them more likely to develop both irritant and allergic contact dermatitis. Where is the dermatitis? That's the next step. Um, Again, if it's only on somebody's feet, well, we're thinking maybe shoes or socks or something there is, is the highest likelihood of, of exposure. Doesn't mean it's the only possibility, but it obviously clues us. Um, what's it look like? Is it, uh, is it uh, vesicular, acute, blistery, weepy, red, inflamed? Well, that means that they're probably very allergic to something and they're probably getting that exposure pretty routinely. But what we tend to see more commonly is the chronic lichenified, kind of pink, kind of scratched up, uh, roughened up dermatitis. <clears throat> and also, I think it's absolutely crit critical to remember uh, that, let's say we think we have somebody with allergic dermatitis, we've treated them maybe for a while, uh, maybe we're getting ready to patch test them or whatever, um, and if things aren't going the way you think they should go with the t normal treatment of dermatitis or eczema, you've got to think about something else and, and Cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is the biggest mimicker of allergic dermatitis. Obviously, it's not common. 
Um, but you've still got to put it in the back of your mind to think, oh, I wonder if this could be something else, maybe an unusual psoriasis, maybe uh, cutaneous lymphoma or some other thing. So just tuck that away in the back after you've been working with somebody for a couple of months. The only way you can diagnose allergic contact dermatitis is by patch testing. Irritant contact dermatitis, on the other hand, is mainly diagnosed by negative patch tests, so you've eliminated allergy, and by the history and exam, and you, so you have to know that that person has had some irritant exposure, and the skin looks like what we showed before, uh, the irritant sort of thing. Biopsies are useless in differentiating eczemas. All eczemas essentially look the same on a biopsy. Now, they're, they're critical in maybe ruling out cutaneous T-cell lymphoma or psoriasis or some other skin disease, but if you know you've got an eczema or dermatitis, and I use those interchangeably, those terms, uh, the biopsy is not going to tell you it's allergic or irritant. There's no way. So uh, that's not even worth doing unless you have a suspicion of something that's not dermatitis. <clears throat> okay, so those of you who patch test, bear with me. I'm going to go through this quickly. Patch testing involves applying a variety of allergens to the back. Generally, on uh, what we do when we do a lot of allergens on these tapes that have these little 8-millimeter discs, which are called FIN, F-I-N-N, chambers, uh, in any case, however you do them, you slap them on the back for two days, uh, then you take them off, and you look at the skin where these patches were, and you do your first reading, but many allergens do not show anything at the first reading, so the second reading is absolutely critical. We do it two days after the patches are removed. You could do it three days later. You could do it five days later. As long as you do one, somewhere in the neighborhood of two, three, four, five days after the patches are removed, so in my practice, Monday, Wednesday, Friday is typical, but you can adjust that a little bit. Uh, so here is uh, a series of allergens that we're going to put on somebody's back, and we have, um, or I have, marked on the paper there, maybe you can see the little circles, uh, which allergens out of those uh, 40 or whatever they are we're going to use. Uh, the patch test nurse then has uh, marked the uh, paper, uh, marked the paper covering the uh, chamber, and now she's putting the allergens in the chamber and being very careful to make sure that she's getting the right one in the right chamber because that would make it a pretty tough if uh, number one is actually in chamber number six. So she's doing all that, and then she's going to slap them on the back. So there's a fairly typical situation for us. I routinely test folks with maybe in the neighborhood of 80 to 100 allergens. Uh, the true test system you may be aware of has... 30-some-odd allergens, and it's a good start. Uh, it's certainly, uh, there are m many more things that we have to think about, but if you if you're, uh, have access to the true test only, it's absolutely a whole lot better than doing nothing. And there's a positive patch test. That could be a positive patch test to anything that I put on the back. It happens to be to gold in this case, but um, that's just typically what they look like. And that's a fairly strong positive. They're not all that strong. Um, so you, got, you want to apply these things to a clean, dry, hair-free back. So when we got a hairy guy, uh, we shave the back with an electric razor that doesn't abrade the skin but leaves a little stubble but allows us to put the patches on and not do him uh, severe damage when we pull them off. Um, the two readings I mentioned are critical. And then the thing that you've got to do at the end is talk to the patients about their allergens uh, and give them as much information as you can. And that's how you learn to do it. So... If you're thinking, oh, I might start doing some patch testing, 
it's not that tough. I can get the supplies, and even if I'm just using the true test, it's a good start. But then you think, well, if I get a reaction, what happens? Well, what happens at the beginning is, at least it did with me 35 years ago, is I started talking to the patient about that chemical, and, and we learned together. There, you know, there's no harm in, you, you don't have to act like you are the guy that knows every single thing or lady that knows every single thing about this allergen. So I learned a lot by talking to patients, finding out what they're exposed to, where this chemical might come from. And, of course, you've got to read up on stuff and all that else, all that other stuff. But um, you'd be surprised that patients are very happy to, have, to help you learn about the things they're exposed to. So allergic contact dermatitis can come along with other uh, dermatoses. And in this case, so here you can see, I hope, the, yeah, I think it projects very well. Uh, this guy with a red face, neck, uh, did he just have plain old seborrheic dermatitis? Did he have that plus some other kind of dermatitis? In this case, that particular guy had a photodermatitis, so he had an allergy to something, a chemical, plus sun exposure, plus seborrheic dermatitis. This is the typical uh, prevalence that we publish when we do this data, we collect it every couple of years, the North American Contact Dermatitis Group. There's about 13 of us, uh, three Canadians and the rest in the U.S. And we put all our data together, and that's where the publications come that tell you what's the prevalence of allergy to certain substances. And as you can see here, this was the last publication a couple years ago. It'll be almost identical. Next year, uh, there'll be a little change now and then, but it's not a big difference. So nickel neomycin, fragrances, bacitracin, meroxalon, which is a fragrance allergen, cobalt, another metal, quaternium-15, a preservative. PPDA is diamine, that's a main chemical in hair dye. So all that stuff uh, is, is, those are the kind of the most top 10 or so common allergens. And as I say, we do down to 70 or so, so you see some that are much less common. So that's the prevalence uh, in the patients that we test. And in fact, um, nickel is probably, this is, might be even a little low, but um, that carries over to the general public. Because most people with nickel allergy, you know, you know it, you avoid inexpensive earrings, you don't come to me to get patch tested. So about 20% of Americans are probably allergic to nickel. Uh, and then the rest of these things, as you see down the line. Okay, so here's a lady who has, uh, I, you know, I don't know if this obscures her at all, but I'm sure none of you would have any clue who she is or where she's from, um, because I obviously couldn't cover up her eyes because that's where her dermatitis is. So when you see that picture, upper eyelid and lower, um, and then maybe there's a little elsewhere on the face as well, you're thinking, okay, this, this is likely to be allergic. Look, I mean, that's going on a long time, right? That's very lichenified, looks like it's been itchy, she's been rubbing a lot and whatever. And there's a host of allergens that could cause dermatitis uh, in this lady. Could be preservatives or fragrances in her hair care products, in her skin care products, facial care products, in stuff she washes her hands with because her hands are tougher, she rubs her eyes, the, allergen, the allergy shows up there. It could be lots of other components uh, in skincare products. So all that kind of stuff you have to think about. And mo fortunately, most of the things that you might think about are going to be on the standard allergen series you're using anyway. The source of that lady's dermatitis, again, could be her facial skincare products, her cosmetics, lots of other stuff, stuff she handles and touches, and obviously eye drops, which, you know, she wasn't using any, but she'd obviously think about that in that location. So, but keep in mind, and the reason I put that picture in is that 
a facial skin is much more sensitive to allergy than, say, your hands. And so hand-to-face contact is not at all unusual. So just because a person, let's say that lady, if she had been allergic to gold and she was wearing a lot of rings, she might have had little or no dermatitis on her hands, but it may show up in that, in that area. All right, here's a, a person who is wearing this, uh, I don't know what brand this is, kind of a Fitbit sort of thing, and I think you can see the dermatitis down there uh, where it's been strapped on. And, and this could have been a number of potential allergens in this device, right? It could have been uh, rubber, it could have been metal, it could have been the glue that holds the pieces together. Uh, so what do you think it might have been in this particular case? This is a, you can vote for this one if you would. Nickel. So two-thirds of you said nickel. Yeah, so, so in this case it was. I don't know if you noticed on that uh, there was a little, I think I can go back here. Can I go back one? Notice the nickel buckle there. So that's where the dermatitis was. And notice how it's kind of that square uh, patch of dermatitis. But it could have been uh, glue in the, in the device. It probably wouldn't have been those other allergens because those are all things in skincare products that why would it just show up in that spot, right? So, so in this case, nickel uh, was, uh, was the answer. And some of you uh, mentioned methyl isothiazolinone because you know that's becoming a very common allergen, perhaps. Another thing we see sometimes that I'm not going to have any time to get into today is, is allergy to prosthetic implants. This person had uh, something done, a procedure. Uh, probably you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize it's an artificial knee that got put into that uh, person. And you see the dermatitis that's developing, hopefully showing up somewhere um, around the uh, lower part of the uh, scar there. Uh, and that is a fairly typical situation if a person is allergic to something in their implant. It's not typical to be allergic to something in your implant, but if you are allergic to something in the implant, it may look like that. And here's a nice case of contact dermatitis. You know, for those of you who think, oh, contact dermatitis, it's a mild little thing, it's no big deal. Um, this uh, lady uh, turned out to be allergic to her sofa. Uh, the sofa had been imported from China, and uh, at the time, the Chinese had decided, of course, they came over on a boat, right? Nobody flies sofas on airplanes, I don't think. So it came over on a boat. And on the boat, what, you have moist, humid conditions. And so some uh, anti-mold uh, ingredients were, were packaged with the sofas. And they were very volatile. So they penetrated the uh, fabric in her sofa. And when she sat down, and, I, and she, she definitely wasn't just sitting down naked on her sofa, right? She had clothes on. And she got this bad of a dermatitis just by that particular exposure. So I just put this in to show, not, not to worry about that particular chemical because it's not around much anymore, but just to show how bad allergic contact dermatitis can really be. So here's an individual. If you can see, she's pulling down the bra. Her dermatitis, I think you can appreciate, is below the axilla there. Her left arm is raised up. You see patches on the back or the markings where the patches were. So this was typical location for a particular type of allergic contact dermatitis. So what do you think that one might have been? Uh, that patch of dermatitis kind of below the axilla, 
uh, underneath where the bra was. Could it have been nickel, maybe formaldehyde, maybe gold, methyl methacrylate, or perhaps the cat? Okay, first of all, it's never the cat. Um, cats are nice animals, I have one. Um, but uh, they can, might cause urticaria, but that's gonna be obvious, but they don't cause contact dermatitis. Um, yeah, so this, this was a tough one. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily think gold uh, in this case. So methyl methacrylate is an adhesive or glue, probably not an exposure there. This was formaldehyde from her clothing. So, so permanent pressed clothing uh, contains formaldehyde, and that's where this one came from. These are not easy. I don't expect you all to get most of these. Um, and by the way, toward the end of the talk, after I'm finished speaking, because I want to leave room for, uh, for discussion and questions, uh, there's some other material in your handout that I'm not going to get into, and it'll go into some of these allergens a little more in detail, so you can refer to that later. So this poor fellow had gotten worse and worse for three months. He comes in to see me. He looks like this. He'd been this way for three months. And that's kind of a clue, and it hadn't gone anywhere else. The dermatitis was just there on his face, and it wasn't going anywhere else. So that's a pretty good clue that, you know what, this is almost certainly something he's using in that site. And that could have been maybe uh, a dental care product, maybe a toothpaste or mouthwash, more likely probably something that he uh, was putting on the skin. Uh, and so that's when you think, okay, it's been going on a long time, he's been treating it with something or been exposed to something, then, okay, either that's probably that he's allergic to something that's been used to treat that condition, or it's not dermatitis, and that's when you've got to think maybe about biopsy or whatever. In this case, that was in propylene glycol, which was in his topical steroids. Propylene glycol is not an awful chemical. It's not a terrible allergen, but it can be an allergen, and it's in almost all of your topical corticosteroids, almost all, not all, but almost. So here's a lady with dermatitis on her neck. It's a little more faint, but I think you can still see that below the earring uh, there and down on the neck, she's got some dermatitis going on. And again, there could be a, lot, a host of potential allergens in this site uh, of exposure. In that case, it was nickel. It was her earrings that were kind of hanging down there a lot and causing that dermatitis. Now here's another classic one, and the patient will tell you almost exclusively that, this, that they're allergic to their Band-Aid, okay? What they're really allergic to is the neomycin or neosporin that they're putting on the biopsy site, and that's why most people don't use uh, topical antibiotics on biopsy sites anymore, uh, because it's much more common to be allergic to that than it would be to be allergic to the Band-Aid, but the patient always thinks it's the Band-Aid. So uh, that's where you get rid of the neosporin, put a little topical steroid on there, and they're good to go. Another patch test reaction, just to remind you, uh, they don't have to be as vigorous as the one before. This one uh, is another positive patch test reaction. You can see the rest of the backs totally normal, and in that one site where the disc was, uh, that person reacted. What about kids? If you're patch testing kids, do you expect to see the same thing as you would in adults? The answer is pretty much yes. It's a little difference in numbers, but the overall thing is pretty similar. Still, nickel is very common, metals pardon me, like cobalt common. This was from two different centers where we uh, looked at their pediatric data, uh, topical antibiotics, fragrances, et cetera. So 
the point of here is, is that if, you, if you're going to patch test a kid, and I encourage you to do so in the appropriate situation, you're going to get positive reactions, and it's going to be just pretty much the same as what you get with adults, more or, more or less. This was an Italian survey of about 350 kids from age 1 to 15. They didn't break it down because I'm not sure a 15-year-old's a kid anymore from a physiologic uh, cutaneous standpoint, but at any rate, they had about 350 kids, and 70% of them had at least one positive patch test. Many of those were atopic, and, and at least half of the atopics had positive patch test. So, and there are a bunch of other studies out there that will give you the same kind of data. Uh, there's a couple more. They're in your handout. You can look at that if you want. But the point of it is, is that whether you're atopic or not, if you're a kid, you still can get allergic contact dermatitis. So when should you patch test those kids? When the eczema is not in the typical atopic areas, absolutely consider that. Or if it started out in the typical areas like the uh, antecubital and popliteal spaces, then and now it's going other places certainly think about it. And if it doesn't respond to your usual uh, effective treatments, if it starts when the kid's about five, over five, because as you know, most atopics uh, as children are going to start below the age of five. Uh, and of course, you know, if you're just sitting around not doing anything, uh, you can just go ahead and patch test anybody that wanders in. I appreciate doing that myself. Um, this picture is from uh, a pediatric dermatologist named Fred Golly down in Houston. Uh, and you can see the dermatitis on the abdomen below the umbilicus and also on the butt. Now, what happened with this kid? And I put this in because I think it is important to think about. If you're allergic to nickel, I would tell you stay away from nickel, don't wear those cheap earrings, and if you're just dying to wear those cheap earrings now and then, okay, have some topical steroid and put it on there before and after you wear your cheap earrings and you're all good. If you're a, an atopic person, especially an atopic child, and you're allergic to nickel. And I say nickel because we don't know if this really happens with other allergens or not. But if you're an atopic kid and you're allergic to nickel, I tell mom and the kid that you must avoid nickel absolutely like the plague because any little bit of nickel exposure in the atopic may result in this so-called id reaction. In other words, the primary reaction occurred from a blue jean button or belt buckle on the abdomen there, but then the dermatitis <clears throat> just flared all over the place there was no nickel exposure to any of the rest of his body, uh, but that one source of nickel exposure was critical. So when you've got the atopic, they're allergic to nickel, tell them they got to be really obsessive compulsive about staying away from uh, nickel. So again, uh, I would strongly recommend patch testing in any chronic atopic individual who is difficult to control, getting worse, and whatever, and uh, it's the same allergens <clears throat> in general as we see otherwise. So this little girl, I'm not sure you can appreciate it back there, but she's just covered with identified dermatitis. She was four. Once we got her better, we did some patch testing on her. So you're, many of you are allergic to the true test. How many of you do uh, anything beyond the true test for patch testing, those who do? Okay, good, a few of you do. So if you're using the true test, as I mentioned before, it's perfectly fine. It's better than nothing. Um, the true test uh, is where you just open a package that has uh, pre-applied uh, allergens on tapes. You slap them on the back. I like. I, I don't. You know, as a, as a dermatologist, um, I am incompetent at putting patches together, and I have nursing staff that is really good at it. But for the true test, you don't even even a doctor and a PA can do it. You don't need staff to to do this stuff. Um, obviously, the the di big difference is that you got a lot more allergens available if you're using the true test system or the chamber system. You know, there, there's probably three or 400 allergens you can buy commercially. 
Um, it's also less expensive if you do a fair amount of them. Uh, so, uh, but even even if you count the time involved, once you get a get a, get a technician who's uh, up to up to speed and able to put these together pretty quickly, uh, it's uh, it's a little in a, less expensive to buy the materials. <clears throat> True Test is really good for metal allergy because they cover nickel, cobalt, gold, and chromium. They've got the topical antibiotics, they got the steroids, they got the rubber allergens, and they got the formaldehyde-based preservatives. What's it not so good for? So if you've got an orthopedic or a dental implant that may have metals or acrylates that are not on the true test, that can be a problem. Maybe fragrances, I'll get to in a second. The newer preservatives like methyl isothiazolinone and iodopropanyl butylcarbamate, they don't have on that true test. Surfactants like cocomitopropyl betaine. Uh, and a lot of industrial and cosmetic allergens. So from a fairly straightforward point of view, if somebody has a facial dermatitis, hand dermatitis, true test can be pretty good. Uh, but you always must remember that if you uh, are doing the true test, uh, you might miss some, or you will miss some allergens, especially some of the more unusual ones. Uh, in this study from about 10 years ago, uh, but it would be reproducible pretty much today, about 40 percent had a positive patch test on our testing panel that would not have shown up on the true test. Don Belsito, who was in Kansas at the time, did a publication looking at a bunch of patients, about 100 patients, so it wasn't a whole lot, where he put both of them on the same person. So he put the fin chamber allergens and he put the true test on the same person. And in his little study, the chamber test where you put the allergens on yourself were a little bit better at finding allergy to fragrances and rubber and the true test was better at some of these other ones like nickel and neomycin. It wasn't enough difference to make a big deal. So the point of all this is, is that the true test is certainly better than nothing at all. It's good for the person who doesn't test a whole lot, uh, but remember that a negative true test uh, will miss some things, especially in certain situations. Okay, we did this before, let's do it again. Now that we've been through all that fun stuff, allergic contact dermatitis in an atopic person compared to a non-atopic one is more common, less common, or of the same prevalence. <clears throat> Round a corner, could that someone be Mac the Knife? All right, you got it. It's more common. It is a little bit more common. And most of you got it right the first time, and more of you got it right this time. That's great. <clears throat> so do you take over in the back there now? He's got it. Thank you. So now remember uh, two things. I wanted to leave time, and we've got put pretty good amount of time for your questions, because I know what I want to talk about, and I know what I think is important, but I don't know what you need to know. So that's why I think the Q&A is so important. Um, and also, there is quite a bit of information on specific allergens if you're, if you're, when you go back into your handout and look beyond where we are now at the stop point, you'll see more information on specific allergens. I have a patient with what appeared to be allergic contact dermatitis who did patch testing, hit on anything related to his professional sharp, profession sharpening blades. Here, it's later similar to square in the side of panel two or near three. Is this uh, probably logical? Uh, I hope the patient was stoical. Um, is it that he's not avoiding the allergen flaring patch on his back? Well, it could be, but I, I, this question brings up a very important point of patch testing, and that is that certain allergens can be very persistent. 
some patients might think, well, that's an annoying. I've got this patch still on my back. That, and, and, and it was something he was positive to, I'm sure, at the beginning, and is still showing up on his back. Um, but I like that because then you can say, well, look, Mr. Smith, that thing on your back is still positive. It's going to take you at least that long till that goes away before your dermatitis is all the way better. So it kind of helps you to teach the patient that these things take a while to go away, even if you avoid the allergen. And the one allergen that is the notorious problem with this is gold. So that was probably gold. I don't know which, obviously, what it was. But I'm, I would guess, if you had to make, me a, make, make a guess, gold would be the one that would do that. Uh, the hair dye chemical, paraphenylene diamine, does that too. But other allergens can have that persistent reaction. Now, what can you do about it? You can put a little corticosteroid in intralesionally, or you can give them some topicals to rub on back there. But it's not terribly unusual for certain allergens to do it, and actually I think it's pretty good. What patch test is best to use? Um, whichever one you can get. Obviously, if you really want to be comprehensive, you'd like to use a series of 70 or 80 allergens which are available basically from two sources. One is, one is that company called Smart Practice, which is based in the U.S., and the other is a company uh, called uh, Chemo Technique, which is based in Sweden. You can Google those and find them. Uh, both of them will sell you allergens, and they're very similar. We tend to use the Smart Practice ones, uh, but uh, any of those if you want a more extensive uh, pattern. Now, speaking of gold, have you seen a lot of false positives? Yes, but that's true of any allergen. So, so you know, you might see an hour, a, a patch test positive to neomycin, and the person says, well, Doc, I don't know that I've ever really had a problem with neosporin. Well, if that person kept putting neosporin on their wound for a couple weeks in a row, they probably would. If they put it on twice because they cut their finger and that's the end of it, maybe they didn't have a problem, but they are allergic to it. So that's not technically a false positive. Um, that's been it's been reported that gold causes a lot of false positives, and it, it sometimes and that's somewhat true. But whenever I have a gold positive, you would be surprised at how many patients I I look at them and they're not wearing any gold jewelry, and I ask ask her because it's more much more women than men with gold allergy. I ask her, I say, well, how come, you know, I see you don't wear much gold jewelry. Do you not like gold? Do you not like jewelry? Well, I, you know, I just don't wear gold jewelry much because I think it bothered me once or twice. And I don't know, it just, I just, I, I, I'm sticking with, uh, you know, sterling silver or something else. And so you'd be surprised at how many times it may not be related to the current problem they're having, but it may be related to a past problem. Uh, and maybe the patient's already identified that. Do we have another one? Excellent. So how does patch testing compare to skin prick testing as far as efficacy is concerned? I can't quote you the exact uh, 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 positive and, uh, and, uh, and false positive and false negative numbers in both of those. Um, I can tell you uh, that um, Patch testing is obviously a T-cell mediated process we're looking at. Prick testing is an IgE mediated process, and so they're measuring very different things. And from a clinical standpoint, um, patch testing is much more likely to give you an answer as far as a cause of allergic dermatitis. Uh, with prick testing, you know, you, you may often get low reactions, low reactivity. So let's say you've got a youngster who gets a positive prick test to milk or dairy products. 
And mom says, well, you know, when Johnny was two years old, he would throw up when he had milk, but now he's six and he's not having any problem with it at all. So um, I, I think you will see that much more likely to happen than if you're allergic to nickel uh, and you're putting nickel in your ears, you're going to have a problem. So, so the, the, they are, since they're two different things, and, they're, and I can't give you the exact numbers, but I think from a predictor of disease, the patch test is going to be uh, a little bit more likely to give you a true positive. <clears throat> Seeing a new bump in gold allergy reaction in younger patients, well, not really, I don't think. I mean, I think we, we do see more nickel allergy in younger people because of more piercings, and it's absolutely quantitatively related. We've proven that with some study we've, studies we've done. So if your peers get a lot of piercings and you're using a lot of gold in the piercings, the answer is we should start seeing that. I'm not sure we have yet, but it could certainly happen. My supervising physician says it's okay to use expired allergens. Do you agree? Well, that depends on how old your supervising physician is, because if he or she has got stuff left over from the 1960s, I'd say yeah, it's probably you want to pitch those. Um, yes, the answer, though, generally is if, if they're within a year or two, personally, I think that's, that's okay. That is my opinion. That is not medical fact. There is not a study to prove that, okay? I want you to know, be very clear, that's off-label and that's my opinion. Um, with most allergens uh, and, um, you, know, the, you know, the expiration date, it's a whole lot like expiration dates on other medicines and foods. The reason that expiration date's on there is that's how long somebody did a study to tell the FDA the product will work. Product could have worked, you know, you might have a, a pill in your, in your medicine bag there that's 20 years old, and it might be just fine, but nobody did a study to prove it is, so the manufacturer has to say it's going to expire at a certain date a certain time and don't use it beyond that. So they're required by the FDA to say that. It, it doesn't mean that things won't work beyond that. Now, since you brought that up, I'm going I'm to mention a couple of allergens that you do have to be very careful of. And this is not in the handout, so if you really care, make a note of this. The acrylates, the methyl methacrylate and the other acrylates, uh, are very volatile, and so they will go away. Uh, even in they're sitting in that two closed tube, they will go away uh, over the course of time. So I would not use those past their expiration. And the other one that's very volatile is the fragrances. So fragrance mix, balsam of Peru or meroxylon, perere. Um, th those I would want to keep really up to date. I got to tell you, if you got a, uh, a syringe full of nickel that's three or four years old, it's, I, I just about guarantee it's going to be just as good as it was when you started with it. So most of the other allergens are, are okay. And again, okay, let's say a few years, sure. 20 years, no, nah, probably not. I don't know where the cutoff is. <clears throat> I have a patient who gets chronic vesicular dermatitis from exposure to chlorinated water. Um, so I have no idea, is it drinking water? Is it water in a hot tub or a pool? Um, if it's in a pool, let's say, I'll give you that. Um, if, it's, if it's drinking water that's been chlorinated, I've got no clue about and I would just about guarantee you it has nothing to do with the drinking water. But if it is in a pool or a hot tub, um, there are certain chemicals, usually not the chlorine itself, but some shock chemicals that are called uh, persulfates that can certainly cause dermatitis, and we see it fairly commonly. So uh, if it's that's exposure, it's probably not the chlorine, it's probably the pool. You're not open on Fridays. Is it okay to do the final reading on Thursday? 
All right, I, I don't know how old this person is, but if you're a young person, come on, work, work the week, you know, come on, get, get in the program here. You know, you're my age, you want to take a lot of time off, but come on. No, so the answer is yes, it is. You will miss a few reactions if you do it on Thursday. I would kind of rather you do it on the following Monday. You could, do, you know, if you do Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday, Monday is probably a little better than Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. So if you can, I would do that. But Thursday would be okay. You know, you, you'll still be relatively good. <clears throat> Picture eyelid contact or MWOC similar to eczema. How do you tell the difference between the two? Well, so that's, you know, the, the lady did not have a history of eczema anywhere else on her body. She had no childhood history of atopy. Um, she had, in, in Kentucky, everybody, every single person has allergic rhinitis. So that doesn't help you. So respiratory allergy doesn't really help. But, um, uh, and so it was a chronic thing, and she didn't have eczema anywhere else. But, you know, even if she did, even if she had had allergic or atopic dermatitis on other parts of her body, she could have had allergic dermatitis as well. So I still would have patch tested her. Can you get poison ivy dermatitis from the cat and dog? Yes, if the cat and dog are out there, it'll stay on their fur, and you touch the cat and dog, and you can get it just like you can from your tools and gloves and other gardening stuff if you don't wash them off. Ever seen a case where a patient's been allergic to plain Vaseline? It has never been reported in the universe. Now, people can get occlusion, right, you know, from the grease and whatever. Vaseline, no, no allergy. One of the most common presentations of allergic dermatitis is middle-aged, uh, I guess, female with periocular involvement, often chronic. <clears throat> I'm nervous about missing dermatomyositis. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, so if it, you still, you know, you may patch test that person, and if it's totally negative, that would, or if, or if it's positive, it would give you the answer. Yeah, if it's negative, but so remember, there are a few subtle differences. Um, usually you get some telangiectasia. Usually the, the uh, upper eyelids are much more involved in uh, dermatomyositis. You know, a lot of times you get hand involvement, Gottron's papules on the backs of the fingers. You get some perinicheal uh, involvement around the nails. And so, you know, if you saw, you'd want to look for some of all those other things. You could, you could, you know, see if they can raise their arms up, you know, and that sort of thing too. But, um, but yes, I mean, it is, that's, that's exactly what I was trying to say earlier. It's very good to think about other possibilities uh, and at least let them run through your mind. And this would be an area where a biopsy would be absolutely helpful if you, uh, if you were really unsure because the, the differences in a biopsy would be totally clear. We use Plano Sharpie markers. Um, we use uh, dark ones and then overlay them with uh, orange or yellow because they fluoresce. And so you, if you have a woods light, so let's say you've taken the patches off, you've marked them, and the patient comes back a few days later, and that is a little more of a problem on Monday if they've, if they've been away for a few days. Maybe they've sweated, maybe they've intentionally or not kind of rubbed their back and whatever, and some of the patches are faint. If you've used that fluorescent Sharpie marker, then use your woods light, turn the room lights off, put the woods light on, and it'll fluoresce and it'll show you the markings. Uh, and so it'll help you use that. We do that occasionally. But usually just a double layer of regular Sharpies and dark, dark blue, black, whatever, and then, and then the orange or yellow. <clears throat> do you need to worry about sensitizing patients? Um, if you're using standard allergens, the, the rate of sensitization is almost nil. It's always a possibility, children or adults, but it's exceedingly rare. Now, if you're putting something on them that was non-standard, that you just kind of, you know, mom brought it in off the shelf and said, I think my kid's allergic to this stuff, and you're not really sure, you know, what's in that or the concentration of what's in there, whatever, then, then you've know, then you got to be careful. And, in fact, I would recommend not even doing that. <clears throat> 
I counsel a patient to use a nickel-free diet when they are allergic to nickel and when they've avoided external exposure to nickel and when they still have their dermatitis, uh, and assuming they don't have other allergies as well, right? So you've gotten rid of all the topical exposures of allergens, um, and then they're still having dermatitis. So then absolutely I would have that person consider a nickel-free diet, and it is probably going to account for somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 to 5 percent of your nickel-allergic patients. It's not very many, but on the other hand, there's a whole lot of people allergic to nickel. So uh, depending on what food they eat, where things grow, and whatever, it matters. And obviously, we don't have time to get into all that. That's available online, that information. Um, and that goes along with this other question as well. Yes, is that id reaction in the atopic kid that I showed, was that due to systemic nickel ingestion from food? Might have been. Might have been. So yeah, anytime there's uh, dermatitis in areas not directly related to the contact, um, and it hasn't gone away, say, in six weeks or so, uh, I'll do that. Uh, topical steroids without propylene glycol. Um, so there are only a few. Uh, desinide ointment is, is usually free of propylene glycol, even the generics. Uh, cloderm cream, uh, you know, don't, we don't like to recommend brands necessarily, but cloderm or clocortolone cream, there is no generic for that, is, is uh, the only cream I know of that's uh, free of propylene glycol. Halog ointment, halcinonide uh, uh, ointment, uh, and again, there's no generic for that, I don't think. Um, and then um, one of the uh, desoxymetazones, topicort, may, I think the ointment. So uh, that's about the only three that I know of that are, uh, that are uh, propylene glycol free. Ointments tend to be a little less likely to have them than creams. Um, depending on how long the systemic steroid use has been. So if you've had somebody that you're, tr you're giving them the systemic steroid for their dermatitis, I like to stop for a week, if at all possible, uh, and then patch test. If it's a shot of IM Kenalog, if you ever use that, I like to wait three or four weeks after that, because that is persistent, as you know. Uh, if somebody's on a systemic steroid for something else, let's say they got, I don't know, lupus or transplant rejection uh, prevention or whatever, then um, uh, try, if it's possible below 10 milligrams a day of prednisone, you're going to be pretty safe at patch testing. You still might miss a few, but there have been some pretty good studies that show you can still patch test if it's below 10 milligrams a day. Does powdered milk sequester formaldehyde in the wash? I do not think so. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, well, some areas of the body, so the nickel allergy thing, and this is a good point of contact allergy in general. Um, you know, your skin gets more sensitive in some areas than others, and theoretically we've got those T-cells wandering around all through your body that are going to be able to react. The reality is that certain parts of your skin, especially those that have been previously sensitized with an allergen, tend to be much more reactive than the rest of you. And so you, you do get resident T-cells in parts of your skin that react uh, in one place rather than another. Uh, does gold, titanium, et cetera, really expire? Yeah, as I said before, it, you know, if it was a long time, many years, I wouldn't use it, but probably a couple years is fine. Yes, as far as I'm concerned, you can shower after the first reading, but not, don't get the back wet. You know, just hit the front of you and stand there and, and don't get your back all wet. Um, or you can just do a bath, a tub bath. Uh, antihistamines have no effect on patch testing, so people can take as much antihistamine as they can stand. 
What do you do when a patch test has a very mild reaction, can't determine it's positive or negative? Very common problem, right? You see a little something, is it positive, is it negative? First of all, you have to, to learn certain allergens tend to do that and are not causing an allergy. So when you see the same thing happening at the site of iodopropanyl butylcarbamate uh, in 50% in of your patients, they're not all allergic to that. Um, but then you also have to then talk to the patient and say, I see that you might have a little reaction to such and such. Is there any chance that, that such and such chemical is in your life? And if there is a chance, then I'd say, well, try to stay away from it just in case. Uh, now I really can't help you. The, the reimbursement varies so much from state to state and insurance to insurance. We get reimbursed fine for everything, um, but uh, it varies. Uh, I don't think so. Isopropyl alcohol. Um, we, there are really good studies that have shown that if you wash off a, a poison ivy uh, oil within about 10 or 15 minutes, that'll help you. You can wash it off with anything you want. You don't have to be anything fancy thing. Plain old warm soap and water. But you've literally got 10 or 15 minutes. And if you let it sit on your skin for more than, say, 15 or at least 30 minutes, I don't care what you wash it off with, it's probably not going to do you any good. Um, maybe you'll reduce a little bit of the uh, reaction, but not as much. Uh, no, I prefer whatever the patient likes, ointment cream. I'm fine either way. Uh, I have not seen an oral reaction to smoking or tobacco chewing, but I'm sure it could happen. Uh, again, nickel-free, I think we handled that um, if you're not uh, react or, or responding to topical avoidance. Um, if your suspect has an allergy to the product they have, do you apply the product to the skin? You can patch test people with stuff they bring in if and only if that product is uh, intended to be left on the skin. So if it is a lotion or a cosmetic, you can do it. Do not, do not patch test uh, in this fashion. Do not patch test with a soap or something else that's intended to be rinsed off the skin because then you'll get an irritant reaction almost all the time. Important tape, uh, extra tape's important, just it depends on the patient. We use a little most of the time, but we don't really overdo it. Uh, I think we hit that one. Let's, uh, let's go down the line. In, well, in America, actually, I didn't hit that. In America, uh, and it's because there's different over-the-counter availability of different steroids around the world, right? So in the U.S., 90% of steroid allergy is hydrocortisone. And most of the rest is the IDE family. So budesonide, uh, desonide, triamcinolone, acetonide, the ones that end in IDE. So from the steroid itself, not the other stuff in the tube, but the steroid itself, it's those mostly. Uh, I don't have patients come back beyond 96 hours unless I'm really suspicious of an allergen that I know is going to be delayed. And, um, and then uh, uh, I'll tell them to watch and if they see something to call us and bring them back. And I think, I think our time's up. So thank you all for your attention. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.